Okay, um, Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin at verse 1, which we always do each week. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then below at verse 6 it says, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he, uh, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And we've gone through a list of these folks um, as we've undertaken a study of this hall of faith. And we've seen Noah, and we've seen um, Abraham. We've gone through Sarah and a number of others as we've studied the text together uh, through these past weeks. And, and one of the pictures that we have that we have to be reminded of, again, is the illustration that you come into the desert you're dying of thirst. You come upon a cabin. There's a cabin. It's dilapidated and abandoned. Uh, you're, you're just on the brink of, of dying of, of thirst. And you run up to a rusty old pump and you crank it and nothing happens. And then as you get your wits about you, you see a sign draped over the pump. And on the sign, it says, under the white rock, and please read all of this, under the white rock is a jar of water. Do not drink it. Take half the water and loosen the leather and take the other half and prime the pump and it will give you plenty of water. You'll be able to take your full drink and fill your canteens, but please fill the jar again and replace it under the white rock. There's plenty of water and this pump works. Trust me. And, and now you're at a place where you know there's enough water to sustain you and to quench your thirst for that moment, but anyone coming behind you will not have the ability to do that. So this idea of a hall of faith is that when you come up upon this sign, not only is the sign there with the instructions, but every person who's used the pump has put their name down and says, it works, it works, it works. And that's where we have uh, Noah and Moses and, and Abel. And, and we can go on and on through you know Abraham and Sarah. And we'll go through many more, Isaac and, and Jacob. Um, and, and as I said, Moses. We'll see all of these laid out in the hall of faith. And this is what our life is about. We trust the Lord, we see things that, that haven't come to fruition, and we believe God that he keeps his promises. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and we honor him in that regard. And our faith in living this regard, our children, things are caught, not taught. Generations behind us look at us, and they see that God has been faithful. And so this is the purpose for the hall of faith, is to encourage our faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. As we read and, and understand the stories of these wonderful people in the hall of faith, our lives are, are deeply touched. So that brings us tonight to, um, now we've, we've taken a look at Abraham and Sarah, and last week we saw Sarah in an interesting light. We also saw Abraham in an interesting light. And we're going to see uh, their child, which we covered earlier, Isaac. Now we know that Ishmael was uh, born of, of Hagar, the handmaid, and Isaac was born of Sarah in her old age. When she was 90, Abraham was 100, well beyond the childbearing years, even for back then. Uh, it was as though they were both dead and they still uh, gave birth to this child whose name was Laughter. And we remember why the child's name is Laughter because Sarah laughed when the angel of the Lord said that she'd be with child and she laughed and, and, and uh, the angel said, why did she laugh? She was listening through the tent. She said, I didn't laugh, she lied. Uh, and, this is, and, then, and then when, when Hagar, you remember when Hagar was pregnant uh, with Ishmael, uh, she, she gave uh, uh, Sarah the, the look and Sarah was so irritated, she said, just kick her out. And it's this idea that, you know, she, she said that you might as well sleep with my handmaid, and he did. Uh, he heeded the, word, the voice of Sarah instead of the Lord. The mess was on him. Sarah said, this sin be upon you. 
And we know, as we studied last week, that women say one thing means something else. Not always, but sometimes. She wasn't saying, you know, go sleep with Hagar. She was saying, remind me of the promises. Bathe me in the water of the word as the scriptures declare. We know Sarah to be a woman of faith. We know that in, in, in Peter's epistle that he said that, that, that she had a quiet and gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord, whose daughters you are. She called Abraham Lord, even in these trying times. And he was a man who had slips in his faith. You look at him and you wonder, how did he make it into the hall of faith? Because he's just like you and me. And God doesn't look at our failures in life. What he puts in the, in the hall of faith is what is done for Christ will last. And he, he forgets the past and casts it as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. But only the things that are done by faith are remembered and those have eternal consequences and significance. And this is what we see with Sarah. And, and so Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Uh, they name him Laughter. And with him is the promise, because you remember the promise as we go through this in great detail. Uh, God had, had promised to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and in uh, and, and the sands of the sea. And uh, this promise had been given 25 years before Isaac was born. And, and, and all of this comes to fruition. But the promises that God gave to Abraham are all resting in this kid by the name of Isaac. And you want to talk about the favored child. And Isaac and Ishmael didn't get along. And we're going to see a story um, one day, maybe when we cover uh, the book of Genesis, where Ishmael and Isaac were at odds, but they came together to bury their father. Um, and, and that's the idea that, that reconciliation happens. Typically, someone has to die. And, and uh, they reconciled in the sense to bury their father. But they didn't get along very well. And you can imagine Ishmael, the way his mother was treated and the animosity he had towards Abraham and Sarah, and now Isaac is the son of the promise. And even in the passage we'll read to see about Isaac's life, we're going to see that God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. He doesn't even recognize Ishmael. Ishmael was an attempt in the flesh to try to accomplish what God wanted to work out by faith. And isn't that how we always get ourselves in trouble? We always think, well, God's given me a promise, so I'm going to help God, right? And uh, I'm going to run the credit card or I'm going to, you know, whatever. And, and we even have a really special way of trying to put it together by saying, well, the Lord told me or I had a dream or I really feel a peace about this. And we manufacture all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the promise God gave us in Scripture that he meet our needs in the riches of Christ exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or imagine. The passage tonight that we're looking at is going to be, again, in a sense, Abraham. But we're going to see Isaac on the scene because Isaac in this passage of Hebrews uh, is going to require an enormous amount of faith. Um, and this is the sacrifice where Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac. And many people think that Isaac was a little boy. He was 33 years old, maybe 33 and a half years old, same age as Jesus when he was crucified. He was in his 30s. And uh, he's going, and his, and his dad is over 100 years of age, so he's not going to be able to battle you know, Isaac if Isaac says, I don't want to do this. Um, it, it, he's he's going to beat up his dad and say, go kill somebody else. I, I want to live. Uh, so we're going to see the faith not only of Abraham, but also of Isaac. So look with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Again, it begins by saying, by faith. And faith is what we've been studying. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Everyone say begotten son. Now say only begotten son. Of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense. 
So we're seeing a figurative sense here, and God is alluding to something far more significant uh, in relation to the story of Isaac and Abraham and this sacrifice. And as we see it, it's a pretty significant um, figurative statement. So to understand what's taking place here and what God's referring to in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, let's go to the story. And let's turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Some of you might have God tempted Abraham, but the idea in, in the original language is tested. God tempts no man. He tests us, but he doesn't tempt us. Temptation is not so that we fail. Testing is so that we're, we're purified and we come through as, as uh, the refiner's fire. So, you know, the refiner's fire is it heats up and the slag floats to the surface and the, the, uh, the metallurgist removes the slag and he knows that the metal is pure when he can see his reflection in the metal itself. So God tests us as fire tests metal and lifts the slag and removes the impurities. So God tested Abraham and this was an enormous test. And by the way, by the way, how do you learn a subject? If I turned to my son and I said, you got to study this. Okay, dad. And he gives it a cursory reading. Now, how do I know if he's learned it or not? I test him on it. How do teachers know if you've learned something? They test you on it. Work with me. I know it's Wednesday. I'm just as tired. They test you on it. If nothing, if nothing is learned, then nothing's been taught. So a test is to see what you've learned and to recite the information that's been given to you. And if God said, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to test you so that you trust me. And we remember that Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. So God tests him and he, he calls him, testing him. He said to him, Abraham. And he said these three words, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, just like we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, 17 to 19. Take now your son, your only son. Who has an only son? God the Father. God the Father. And who is his son? Jesus. Now watch for the significance of this figurative sense that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. And by the way, in Genesis 22, we're going to see a couple of words we haven't seen in the entire Bible up until this point. We're going to see the word love. We're going to see the word lamb. We're going to see the word worship. All of these are listed in this text, and it's fascinating. He said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you what? So we see a picture of love sacrifice, a lamb, an only son, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to, everyone say the place. That's interesting. What's the place? the place of which God had told him. Now, when he splits the wood, uh, we're going to see what he does with that. He puts it on his son. He splits the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw what? The place. Say it again. He saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young man, now, if you're looking for a place and God's going to show you what what are you typically going to see as you're heading towards a mountain? I, I would think the peak. Anyone else? 
there's the place, Mount Moriah. There's the peak. It's probably got a cool tree on it. I don't know. It spells Jesus. I don't know. Just something. <laughs> so Abraham took the wood. Uh, excuse me. Stay. Uh, where was I? Oh, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and what? Worship. First time in the scriptures we see the word worship. What does worship mean? It means sacrifice. The altar where you worship is the slaughtering place. It's where you come to die that Jesus might live. What are you doing when you worship with your hands up? What's this in, 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 in war? What's this the international sign of? Surrender, not my will, but thy will be done. This is worship. That's why people raise their hand. God, I want you to take my life. I'm, I'm tired of, of trying to Ishmael this thing. Here you go. And God says, it's more than the Ishmael thing. I want you to trust me even with the promise. I'm gonna take the thing you love most in life. Now let's stop for a minute. What's the thing you love most in life? You don't have to tell me out loud. I'd prefer you wouldn't. Nobody really wants to hear because they're thinking of their own. And we're all selfish anyways, right? But what's the thing you love most that you couldn't do without? Now imagine many of us as parents in here are thinking of our children. Some of us with unruly children thinking that's the last thing that I... For some, it'd be easy to offer Isaac. But here you have a child that's been their laughter their whole life. He represents just the preciousness of God and his faithfulness and everything about that boy has just brought joy to their life. And so he says, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And then he says this, we will come back to you. Now, what did God say in the earlier portions of the text? Now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom, I, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. I'm, I'm asking you to kill your son. And he turns to these two guys that came with him and he said, you stay here, the lad and I are gonna go yonder and worship and we will come back. So what is he testifying to that has never happened in the book of Genesis? Resurrection. I don't know how, but we're both coming back. I know God is not into child sacrifice. I know there's something interesting that he's going to have happen here. I'm not sure how it's all going to come about. I'm trusting him and the two of us are going to come back. I cannot with all my heart fathom that, that God would do anything this awful, right? When you see the movie, The Shack, there's going to be a profound um, scene in The Shack where he sits, he comes into a cave of wisdom and there seated on the, on the, on the throne is wisdom. It's a woman. And, uh, and he starts to put God on trial. He said, if God is all loving and God is all powerful, how could he let my daughter be killed and murdered? And, and he said, he, he needs to rot and burn in hell and die. And he says, so, so now you sit in the judgment seat. And, and while he's there, apparitions of his two children, his son and his daughter appear, the two that are living that are at odds since their youngest sibling had died and the family's just been rocked and the two children are there one is sneaking out at night the other is sneaking out as well and they're both having issues and nobody in the family's connecting since this travesty and these apparitions of the two children appear and he says which one of your children do you want to kill and she goes through the list of what each of them have done now if we want tonight to the bible says all things are laid bare before the eyes of god i only see faces in front of me and they all look great 
But, but in, in that facade of your smiling face is a day that, um, well, we can reflect on. And, and as I've said before, we can show the videotape of what you've thought in secret, what you've done in secret. Uh, we can go through the week if you'd like. And then we're going to stand in judgment to see ourselves as we really are. And that's really what revival is, is, is they say it's like judgment day. You come into the presence of God and you realize your sin and who he is. And there's just a surrender. God, help me, save me. And as this is posed to him about his two children, which one do you want to kill? He says, that's not fair. He says, now you know the dilemma. And then he says this, Max says, take my life, kill me. And then he says, now you know the heart of the father. And he said this to the person portraying God the Father. He said, you, you have a, a unique way of abandoning people you love at the time they need you the most. You abandoned my daughter. You abandoned me when I was a boy. And you abandoned your son on the cross. And I'm touched by the character that plays God the Father in the, in the movie. And if you want to, you know, pick the fly poop out of pepper to, you know, come up with your whole theological argument, it's a movie, relax. But the, the person playing shows the, the, the scars and says, don't think I wasn't there. Don't think I wasn't there. I hurt too. I went through all of that and begins, begins to weep. So you see this picture of the Trinity so profoundly played in this movie. And, and, and as he says this, this um, we are going yonder to worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Interesting. You think of the Via Dolorosa, and we're, and oh, by the way, here's, here it is. We're going to Israel November 6th to the 16th. One of the last places we're going to go to on the trip, we always finish the trip the last day at Gordon's Calvary, the garden tomb. And you have the Holy Sepulchre, which is, you know, what uh, Constantine's mother or mother-in-law, I can't remember, uh, said was the, the purported site. And that's where you have four denominations arguing over the site and they can't get along and they have to have a Muslim open the door and they have a ladder that's been there for hundred for years because they can't agree on whether who's supposed to move it. And they, you know, and it's in disrepair and they're struggling. And sometimes you have the Armenians fighting the Russian Orthodox and then the Catholics jump in. And it's just, it is insane, this place. And people are kissing the rock and there's incense everywhere. And you, you just see the cacophony of noise as you enter into this holy sepulcher. And then you go to Gordon's Calvary. And as you enter into Gordon's Calvary, there's just this peaceful garden. And it almost seems like Joseph of Arimathea's house. And you, you see this tomb and you can see where Christ was you know, feasibly laid. And, and, and you worship there and you take communion. There's, there's this joy about it. I, I, listen, I don't know if it's there or there. One thing I do know is both tombs are empty. Amen. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. So he carries the wood. Jesus carried his cross at the Via Dolorosa. Isaac carries the wood. And he took the fire in his hand. Now, fascinating about the fire. Fire burns the sacrifice. It consumes the sacrifice. Why do you have to slaughter, kill the animal, and burn it? Because that's what God wants to do with sin. Sin is its own judge. Sin destroys mankind. Sin is disobedience to God and the things that he has for us and the way he intends for us to live. And as we operate in a life of sin and we engage in that and we don't worship the Lord, but we worship our flesh and we feed our flesh and we, we endeavor into, into the sin world and we, we become, you know, master degree recipients of, of sinology, uh, it destroys us and our families and it ruins our intimacy and it ruins our community. Sin destroys the earth. 
here we are watching, and, and think about this. We're, we're dealing with the immigration issue in America right now. We allow a million immigrants to come into the United States a year. Do you know how many people live on less than $2 a day in the world? Over 5 billion. And when we take a million of those immigrants into America, we're usually taking the ones who are the most educated. They have those, the best visas and they come and they work and we, 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 we bring in a million. And, and while we take in a million, another 8 million are added to the pile of those who make less than $2 a day. We could take all of them and we still wouldn't solve the hunger and the poverty and the misery. What is the purpose of borders? What do we do with immigrants? One of the things that we do best that no other nation does is we export Christianity. 86 cents of every dollar that is done in evangelism is done by the United States of America. We're the most generous nation on the face of the earth. Whenever there's a, 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 a trauma or a, a, a natural disaster or anything occurs around the world, we're the ones who send the aid. What America sends, you take all of Europe combined and the rest of the world, and it's not even half of what America gives. We're a land of wealth and plenty. But because we are a land of wealth and plenty is not because we have more natural resources. South America possesses far more natural resources than we do. It's not because our people are any better, because our nation is in, in, uh, developed by Europeans and Africans and Asians, and we're, we're, we're a melting pot. It's the only nation on the face of the earth that once you become an American, you're an American. If I live my whole life in Japan and I become a, a Japanese citizen, I'm not Japanese. But in America, when you become an American, you're an American. doesn't matter where you're from, you're an American. But the principle is the ideology. And it's a battle for ideology. The ideology of we the people in order to form a more perfect union, right? This idea of, of creating the image of God with certain inalienable rights, this is necessary. But the contention across the world is if we don't have borders and we can't protect that ideology, and I'm going to leave you with this because it'll tie in with the text. You have secular humanism, which is basically a religious system dis disguised as a government system. It's a religious system saying God doesn't exist. It's atheism, agnosticism. No absolutes, no moral absolutes, a relative, a subjective uh, relativism. And then you have Islam. Islam is a government system, Sharia law, designed, disguised as a religion. The two naturally come together. And so what we're seeing is an influx, and the ideology is what we're combating in America. And so when you come to a place where you see this, the purpose of boundaries is to protect an ideology. And I'll explain to you what I mean. What was put on the back of Isaac and what was put on the back of Jesus? Wood. On Jesus, it was the cross. Turn with me, if you would, to... Um, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. How did Jesus carry the cross? On his back, but you see, maybe it was this way. But what's the best place to carry something heavy? Where, how do you carry it? On your shoulder. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon what? So the authority of government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. Judgment, justice, government, peace. Isn't the world longing for peace? Government, justice, judgment, peace, establishing it. And where does this come from? Jesus. The government will be upon his shoulder. What is the purpose for government? Government is the establishment of a culture to protect people, the Noahic covenant. When Christians don't engage in government and we create an apathy and we don't understand the concept, and if we can't defend immigration, if we can't defend these ideas from a biblical perspective, we're open to all kinds of ideology. What does Christ say about it? Look out for the widow and the orphan and be kind to the stranger in your land? Yes. But does he also agree with boundaries and borders? If you don't have an answer to that, you should. Because as Christians, this is one of the areas where we struggle with because we we're not ready to give a, a, a reason for our faith in season and out of season. This establishment, the government will be upon his shoulder. What does that government look like? Is it a theocracy? Is it a monarchy? Is it socialism, fascism, communism? How did we come about with a constitutional republic? How did these things happen? And the whole point is Christ is dealing with something, as is Isaac. This, as we saw in the text, is figurative. It's figurative of what's going to take place on Calvary. That there is sin in the world that is destroying man. It's a poison and a cancer. How do we protect man and lead them to Christ? How do we, the gospel is the number one thing. Amen? But wouldn't the protecting of a government that protects the preaching of that gospel be very important? Especially if the government is upon his shoulder? Why have we abdicated as Christians our responsibility to protect mankind? Open the borders. What comes in? What is this idea of religious liberty? If religious liberty, liberty is disguised as a government, or excuse me, if a government is disguised as a religion and wants to enact Sharia law, which is fascist, and shuts down others, which is in the 1040 window, do we let that in? Or do we allow people to worship freely? Does that government demand dictates? As a Christian, do we demand dictates of the government? We operate in the context of this ability to have debate and argue for what we call inalienable rights and we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is so necessary because the cross that is going to be that, that, that has been established at Calvary is in a figurative sense what we see here with Isaac. And this wood that he carries is the, is the cross of Christ figuratively speaking. This is the center theme of all of history. The redemption and the deliverance of man. And how does it manifest itself in the world? You've been created in the Lord to do good works that he created you beforehand. This poema, this, this, this poetic, this workmanship. What do those good works look like? How do you activate? How do you engage? How do you transform these mountains of influence? How do you do this? And here we have a mountain that influences every mountain on the face of the earth. This one mountain transforms all the other mountains of influence if we understand the significance of it. You see, Abraham did, and it was a credit to him as righteousness. Isaac did too in his 30s. 
He comes up with his dad in his 30s. He's carrying the wood for the sacrifice. Abraham takes the fire because sin must but be done away with. And we saw what happened to Jesus. When we take communion and we see the bread, which is the body broken, and we see the cup, which is his blood shed for the remission of our sins, we realize how vile and awful sin is and what it costs to, to deliver man and redeem us, that his righteousness would be put on our account imputed to us. He cast our sins as far as east is from the west, reset the button and give us a brand new day so that he looks at us. He says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've chosen to forget it or not remember it. And you forget what is behind. You strive for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. And you go into the world to make a difference. And, and, and listen, to, to be redeemed and, and, and to have salvation is not unto adaptation, but salvation under transformation. We're so concerned about being relevant in a culture that we lose the profound nature of this mountain that had an enormous transformation of every other mountain of cultural influence, which are arts, entertainment, education, media, business, government, religion, all of these. What is this mountain? What is the significance of it? Watch. He takes the fire in his hand, verse 6, and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said to him, My father, (laughs) Dad, (laughs) I'm I'm a little concerned right now. You got the knife, you got the fire, I got the wood. (laughs) And watch this. He said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb? First time we see the word lamb. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the sacrifice, Dad? Where's the lamb? Let's stop for a minute. Let's pose that question to ourselves. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb in your world? Where's the lamb in the 1040 window where 95% of the Muslim world exists? And you take that 1040 window, longitude and latitude, and it's less than 5% of the GDP of the rest of the United States of America. They don't produce anything. Everybody's impoverished. Five billion people living on less than than $2 a day. Where's the lamb? Where's the transformative power that allows these people to live and gives them a hope and a future? I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. Where's the lamb in the abortion industry? Where's the lamb in government? Where's the lamb in media? Where's the lamb in education? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Isaac asked a question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Another way to translate it is God will provide himself the lamb, meaning God will be that lamb. A fascinating insight for a burnt offering. Now, do you remember when I had you repeat the place? Everybody say the place. They went to this place. What is the place? The place. Turn to Luke 23, please. Luke 23. And let's look at verse 32. Verse 32. 
Jesus is on the cross, and the scripture says in Luke 23, verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to what? And what was it called? A translation is Golgotha, or place of the skull. When they came to the place called the skull, when they came to the place called Golgotha, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one at the right hand and the other on the left. How many people have been to Israel? Can you raise your hand? Okay. How many people haven't been want to go? Because we have brochures for you tonight. I love Gordon's I love Gordon's Calvary. I said that early on in the message. It's a place of unbelievable peace in the presence of God. I can't think of a single trip. I, I, we've been on a number of them. I, I've lost count. Where I haven't stepped into Gordon's Calvary and had the Lord speak to me in some capacity. It's precious. The region of Gordon's Calvary, and I love this. You can see it. It's Skull's Hill. It's in the northernmost uh, most part of what is called Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is what we read about in Genesis 22. Mount Moriah is not this immense mountain. It's, it's a ridge that rises. It's a ridge that rises. And, and this Gordon's Calvary, Skull Hill, is the northernmost part of this area called Moriah. And if you look at Leviticus 111, he is to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. It's the same region, what we're reading here, where Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Abraham brought his son Isaac to sacrifice him in Genesis 22. And this is, this is Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will tell you. Uh, this is the same region that God was foreshadowing and serving as symbolic of an event of something to follow, which was God's own son, Jesus Christ, as we saw in the passage in a figurative sense, but also in a literal sense. The region and the tomb is also outside the city gate where Gordon's Calvary is. It's outside the city gate. Hebrews thirteen twelve says, Jesus also offered uh, suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And on top of Golgotha, a stone's throw from the tomb is the garden according to the topographical maps of the area. And you know what? Gordon's tomb, what's interesting about the place of the skull on right by Gordon's Calvary, it's at the highest point of the ridge of Mount Moriah. 777 meters, 777. Above sea level. It's kind of a cool place. Now, the temple that we know in Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles 3, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor, the place provided by David. So the temple was built there. The temple was destroyed. Then the second temple came up and they had the, the location somewhat off. And then now you have a mosque on top of it, the Dome of the Rock, and the highest point, the ridge, is still outside the grounds for Mount Moriah. So where Jesus was sacrificed is the same place where Isaac was offered up, in my estimation. This place is really, really significant. Why is it that three major religions argue over this location? 
right? This mountain, what kind of influence did this mountain have? Sin had entered the world and Christ came into, into the darkness and the people have seen a great light. What is light? It illuminates. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. What does it do? It transforms. It changes everything. You can see clearly. And what was this light of the world? Why did he come? He came to die. Why did he come to die? To reconcile us to the Father. And after we were reconciled, did he take us right up? No, he said, occupy until I come. He says, you'll be created in the Lord unto good works. You're a new creature in Christ. The old is past and new has come. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the transformative power. This one mountain created a transformation of every mountain of influence. And it was prophesied in the very first book of the Bible. And it was by faith that you see the word love, you see the word worship, and you see the word lamb. You see an only begotten son. You see the father sacrificing his son. You see the Lord providing himself the lamb. In the thicket, you'll see here, it says, and Abraham said, my God, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now that to me, they go together. Then they came to the place. There it is again from Luke 23. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. I mean, Isaac is going, Dad, what are you doing? Son, you got to trust me. All right. Dad snapped. I don't think Isaac's saying that. I'm thinking Isaac's saying, you know, Dad, this faith is going to transfer this God you're talking about. I mean, I've heard the story my entire life for 33 years that I was born to parents that had no business giving birth to a child. I mean, I'm looking at you and you're not really my dad. You're like my great, great grandpa. Dad, I have witnessed God's hand in the entirety of our life. I've heard all the stories. I go back through the generations. I've heard of of Cain and Abel. I've heard of Noah. I, I know it all, Dad. And, and knowing Abraham, he, he's, he's got, he's what, one person removed from somebody who was pre-deluvian before the flood? He knows the stories. I'm thinking Isaac's saying, this God is amazing. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him show up. Let's, let's do this. And he binds him. He builds the altar, puts the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. He lays him on the wood. Jesus was laid on the cross. They lay him on the wood. And just as he's about to put the spike into his, into his wrist, figuratively speaking, he's taking the knife. He stretches out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. It's up. He's ready to go. God never intended him to do that. And he's about to do it. The angel of the Lord. Now, this could be a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I don't know. All I know is this is a heavenly being called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. You can, you can, I can guarantee you, Isaac's one, that's a good voice to hear. Dad, 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 you're, you're old. Dad, the guy's talking to you. What is that? Dad? Yeah. Do you hear that? I do. What, is it a bird? No, dad. Listen, listen carefully. Can you talk louder? 
Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. And they said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Means he trusts him. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Stop for a minute. Remember we began by saying, what is the most precious thing in your life? Are you willing to give that up for the Lord? My wife and I had a house, we had a company car, we had everything. We were doing well in the world's eyes. But I hated my job. Hated it. I was called to ministry. To step into ministry would have meant unbelievable poverty. It wasn't so much my faith, because that's what I wanted. And I actually remember finagling it, trying to get the neighbors to rent our house because it was going to go into foreclosure and we were going to try to keep the rent going. And if it didn't, you know, the foreclosure would take a longer period of time and they could live there rent-free. And then we'd bounce it out. We'd at least have some sort of an income. And then we'd cash in the 401k. We'd buy two beater cards. And we got came to my wife with this whole, and we got $800 a month. I have to pay for half the health care. But, but they take existing conditions. And I know you're eight and a half months pregnant with her second child, but this will work. And, and Michelle's been with me long enough. She's looking at me going, man, this guy's Ishmaeling it. The faith wasn't mine. The faith was my wife's. And I'll never forget. She said, Rob, I know that every time you're preaching the gospel, you're right where you're supposed to be. I see your eyes light up and I see how God uses you in ministry. If this is going to get us a step closer to that, let's do it. She had no idea what she agreed to. In eight months from living in a house that we owned with a company car, healthcare, all that. In eight months, we were completely broke living in Section 8 housing in Fresno. Went from Southern California, Redlands, beautiful city, Fresno. Completely broke living on Second Harvest Food Bank food, wondering how we were going to make ends meet. And she gave up everything for the sake of me serving the Lord. It changed my whole life. And that wasn't the end of it. I mean, it went on and on and on as the Lord just removed everything from us. And what's fascinating is everything I lost, I never needed. Everything I gained is what I always wanted. I just didn't know it. And what he's done in our life as a result of that has been the most significant thing in the lives of my kids. My kids would be in Isaac. They would follow us. They'd, they'd do that. I mean, I think about my daughter, Natasha. The kids have grown up and they've witnessed two parents that didn't know the Lord and then came to know the Lord. And then, you know, and, and their childhood is, they're aliens in my home because they've lived in a house with two Christian parents and, and they're, they walk with the Lord and they're sweet and they get it. And I'm like, I don't understand your childhood. And every time my kids do something, I'm, I'm always evaluating it from my childhood, going, you lion snake, you know, and there's no guile in them. They're really sweet. They're, I didn't, dad, and Michelle's like, honey, you know, he's telling the truth. Um, oh, wow, you, you are. You're so not like me. Uh, but Natasha, not raised in any Christian environment whatsoever, leaves her country by the faith of simply meeting us, having to make a big decision at 12 years of age, comes all the way over this country, the house is baffling to her. She's gone through trauma like you can't imagine back in Russia. Doesn't understand the language. By faith, she travels across, ends up with us. 
and this world, this Christian world, all these things, it's like, I, I just don't get this. And struggles in her life and, and fears and trepidation and wanting to manage it and try to figure this out on her own as opposed to trusting God. And she had her own Isaacs. And, and just like Abraham wandered, screwed up in Egypt and everything else, she went on her wandering, found God faithful, came to the end of herself and just said, you know what, Lord, I give you my life, I surrender. That's the Isaac. I'm gonna go back and submit. I'm gonna go back and yield. I'm gonna go back and put my fears and, and all the trigger points and all the things that happened in my childhood. God, you're, you're everything to me, I trust you. And I don't know what it's like to go through trauma and have trigger points where the, the fear paralyzes you. One of the greatest things for me is to watch her take her GED because that is paralyzing to somebody who has attempted and failed and attempted and failed. And you finally just think, why even bother? For all of us, we've been raised with a parent who showed us how to tie our shoes and and showed us how to balance a checkbook and told us how to look someone in the eye and shake their hand. And, and we had scoutmasters and we had assistant scoutmasters. We had Sunday school teachers. We had people that dwell. Go into Compton. Someone said to me on, uh, on a Sunday when I preached, they said, you know, they have multiple generations of, of welfare recipients and they've got anchor babies. And they, they, I go, stop it. Uh, time out. Do you want to move to Compton? No. If you had a business, would, would you live in Compton or live outside of Compton? I would live outside of Compton and work to get my business out of Compton. So what you're saying is you would never live in Compton. No, and you do everything you could to get out. Yes. Why do you think people still live there? Because they have no way out. Everything you had as a child, they don't have there. They don't have those mentors. They don't have those, that hall of faith. They don't have it. Unless someone goes and tells them or spends time and invests in their life, there's no way out. We weren't given borders in America so that we could stay secure. We have a place where the ideology is firm, but we go out and transform the world. This mountain of influence transforms the world. And I I thought about Natasha. She depicted to me and gave me understanding of what it's like to be paralyzed. Then come to a place where I'm going to give up everything. And all I want is Jesus. And from that, God's rebuilding a life. That's the power of Mount Moriah. That's the power of Calvary. And you know what? All you have to do is surrender. All you have to do is be willing. The minute God knew Abraham's heart, he said, stop. That's all I wanted was your heart. I can do everything else. Your sin will be resolved. My son will die. I will provide myself the lamb. And everything you went through with your son Isaac is exactly what I'm going to experience with my son Jesus. And I'm going to go through every bit of it with him. And it was at this moment, in the power of this, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son. God, even the promises pale. I just want you. I don't want the gifts. I want the giver of the gifts. I want to be wholly yours. And Lord, even if the, if the promise of the seed is in Isaac, take him. I know that you'll raise him up. Even from the dead. 
And what he was doing is he was declaring for us when we came to that pump and we were dying of thirst, we can read on that sign, I offered my son and God sent himself a lamb. And he rose from the grave on the third day. And he cleansed me of all of my unrighteousness and I'm a new creature in Christ. The old has passed, the new has come. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will transform the world. And this transformative power of the God whom figuratively I represent with my son Isaac on this mountain that will influence every other mountain. That's your calling. That's what I desire to do in and through you. We'll close by simply saying, Abraham lifted his eyes, verse 13, and looked, and behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horn. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Do you believe he'll provide? Or do you want to Ishmael it? Hagar it? Egypt it? I can go on and on. Rob McCoy it? Jacob it? The Lord will provide, and as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand on which the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The two guys that walked back didn't witness any of that, but they saw a change in the father and the son. They're like, man, what happened to those guys? And Isaac's like, that was so cool. You wouldn't believe it. I'll close with this. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we see them. Mount Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary. The mountain that a transforms every other mountain of influence when we're willing to give it all. Stop for a minute. Look at me if you would. The mountain that transforms every mountain of influence if we're willing to give it all. You know why they're coming here? Because nobody's going there. You know why nobody's going there? Because we're too comfortable here. How will they know unless someone tells them? What missionaries do you support? Pray for? What governments do you... I always ask rhetorical questions, don't worry. What governments do you influence? What portions of the world do you touch by the influence of Mariah, Calvary? And if you don't touch them, is it because it's too difficult? You have something you're holding back that you don't want to lose? What's your fear? What is it? That you'll be despised? Rejected by men? You'll be persecuted and reviled for my name's sake? 
great is your reward on this earth? No, on he in heaven. Ministry's not easy. You're not gonna get people that are thrilled that you're gonna speak the truth in love. Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. You can be like a twig on the banks of a mighty river and go with the flow. Or you can transform the direction of the river. Don't tell me that it's just about the gospel that has no power to transform culture. What occurred here changed the world. I am so tired of it being the gospel. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is the simplicity that, that we are sinful men separated from a holy God, that God sent his only son to die on a cross to pay for our sins and to impute his righteousness to those who would believe in it. And we are saved by faith, saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you believe in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Amen. That's not the end of the gospel. The gospel is transformative. The pulpit makes it simplistic. And we don't want to give up the Isaac of the comfort of the walls of the church while we watch us manage the decline of Christendom. They're coming here because we're not going there. We're watching on TV things that Christians didn't produce because we don't want to give up and challenge and step into that world. We don't want to understand government. We don't want to step out and, and, and understand the currency of those cultures. Become inbred and self-serving. And the walls of the church become our Isaac. 2 Corinthians 5, we close with this tonight. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of what? What does that mean? That means you have a ministry to go get the people that are at odds with God and reconcile them to the Father. How do you do that? Well, I don't believe in government. Do you use an iPhone? Yes. Do you believe in apps to reach the world? Yes. Do you believe in... Yes. How did those get equipped? Did Christians make them? And do you make them just because you know the gospel and you're not educated in electronics? Study to show yourself approved unto God. We need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In addition, you're to be equipped unto every good work. Creating and making and striving and endeavoring and building. Transforming. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Does an ambassador stay in his own country? Does he stay in his own house? Does he represent his own interests? He represents the interests of the government in which he serves. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness means right standing with God. So, that's Isaac, that's Abraham, that's the hall of faith. And what you see is an illustrative picture 
of what was to come. And Abraham and Isaac set the stage so that all of us can see from this mountain, every mountain of influence has been transformed or needs to be. But you haven't been saved to rest your ambassadors. And that's why God did this amazing work. And this is the testimony. And through Abraham and the seed of the promise, Isaac, you're sitting in this room because the gospel was preached to you in a country that allows that to happen. Well, 5 billion people have no one to tell them. This is an ideological establishment for the projecting of the gospel. Where is the gospel going to come from if there aren't any Christians? Wholesale slaughter, massacre of Christians in the 1040 window. And America does nothing. I think it's time that Mount Moriah, Calvary, has a greater influence on every mountain of culture, 